Thank you, Zach. Good morning. Hey. It's great to be with you here today. Uh, let's turn up the lights so I can see you. I am so excited to be here. Uh, I was asked by uh, Seth if I could preach today, and I'm like, yeah, I would love a chance. And you just heard it read. We're going to do John 17. We're preparing for the Easter week, right? This is what's happening uh, on Easter week. Is, you know, uh, This is called Palm Sunday, which happens way back in chapter 12. I'm going to explain that to you in a minute. But up to chapter 17, where Jesus, after teaching them a whole bunch of things, prays for them. And that prayer is so powerful. There's so much in there. And, and I entitled the sermon, Get Ready, because that's what Jesus was trying to do. Get the disciples ready for the toughest thing they're ever going to face in their entire life. And I don't know what you might be facing. And maybe you don't even know what you're going to face, just like they had no clue. But Jesus was getting them ready. And so what I think we need to do after reading that prayer is ask God, Lord, what do I need to do? Help me get ready. This prayer is about us getting ready. And I want to pray right now for you that you would be able to get ready. For who knows what you might be facing. Tomorrow, tonight, in the next year, in the next four or five years. But let's bow in prayer, okay? Lord, we just heard the magnificent prayer of Jesus for his disciples. And even for us, we were included in that prayer. He was trying to get them ready. We need to get ready for whatever may be facing us. And I pray for each and every person here that you'd help them get ready, Lord. To really get ready. To not be thrown by what happens. To not be discouraged. To not turn away. Not to turn to fear and doubt. But to really trust you. Like the disciples did. I pray, Lord, that you'd use this passage of scripture to teach us how to get ready. For whatever life throws at us. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. Okay, if you don't have your Bibles open, open them up to John chapter 17. We're going to go through it together. And um, before I even get into it, I just wanted to uh, tell you something. Let me move this up closer. I like being a little closer. Um, March is one of my favorite times. It's actually one of my least favorite times of the year. But it's my favorite because it's March Madness. I love watching college basketball. And so I've been watching some of the games, and it's fun. And it's so fun to see a, a little college go and beat a big college, or because I was in a little college. It's fun to see um, teams ranked 15, 16 go and beat a number one team and stuff like that. And so much of it, you can tell, has to do with coaching. And you can tell sometimes in the game. One team is, is, is just is making all the buckets and, and, and making all the scores and getting the rebounds, and your team keeps missing their shots, and they're not getting the rebounds, and they're turning the ball over, and you can see sometimes some teams literally in the middle of the game, they're kind of giving up. Like, oh, they're yelling at each other. There's conflict that's falling apart. And, and I know in my mind I often think, oh, I don't know if the coach got them ready for this. 
Then you see other teams where the coach really did get them ready. And even though they're losing, even though they're falling behind point by point, the other team is scoring and they're missing their buckets and all that stuff. They keep at it. They keep at Knicks. You know, they sometimes even win. And you go, boy, that, that coach, he got those boys ready. Right here in this passage, Jesus has been getting his boys ready, the disciples ready. But it wasn't just to play a game. It was to face the most difficult time in their life. And, and this could be very applicable to us with reports of school shootings. Your kid goes to a Christian school and never comes home. Talk about the most terrible thing in your life. Or we hear about the war that's going on in the Ukraine and terrible things happening in those people's lives, many of them Christians. Terrible things happening in China. China's in friction with us. There's all kinds of uh, things happening. Viruses. Now I just read this morning online that, that, oh, they're predicting another virus. And There's all kinds of things happening in our economy. Political conflict, fight, infighting, all things are happening. Seems to be such a moral decline in America. Whoa. All these things seem to be signs of maybe tough things happening. It was the same in the disciples' day. Now Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. And the worst time is going to happen for them. They don't even see it coming. Let me kind of catch you up to speed with a little bit of the background. Jesus doesn't teach these guys how to muscle their way through or um, how to toughen up or, you know what, you guys, you just need to have a winning attitude. No, none of that kind of stuff. Jesus is preparing them and he's preparing them with teaching, teaching, teaching. Chapter 12, which is about the, the triumphal entry, which we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Remember they laid Paul branches as Jesus rode in on a donkey? Well, that's in chapter, way back in chapter 12. Chapter 13, remember, that's when he washes the disciples' feet. Chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Chapter 15, what does he talk about? I'm the vine, you're the branches, you've got to abide in me, you've got to remain in me. He's been teaching them all this. Then in chapter 16, he goes, but don't worry, the helper's coming, the Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to enable you to keep going, even when it gets tough. And in chapter 16, if you read it closely, you'll see a couple times in there, the disciples are going... What, what is he talking about? They clearly are confused. I don't know about you as a believer, but sometimes I get really confused. Like, what's going on? What are you doing? What's going to happen? That's where they were. And so what does Jesus do? He said, you know what? Let's pray. <laughs> Think about this. This is, this is God on earth talking to God in heaven. And he stops. See, have you ever thought about that? Jesus believed so much in prayer that when his disciples are confused, they're just not getting it. He's going, you know, I'm going to pray for you. And God's going to help you. I mean, if the Son of God thinks he needs to pray, do you think maybe you should? If the Son of God prays for his disciples, how about your kids? How about your friends? How about the people in church? How about your neighbor? Jesus Christ thought he needed to pray, so he prays for them, even though they're confused. Um, he believed that much in prayer. And uh, Jesus, <laughs> he prays for three subjects. First, it's like concentric circles. First, he prays for himself. Then he prays for his disciples. Then he pr prays for the disciples that they're going to make, which would include us, right? So he prays with that kind of focus. It's beautiful how logical he prays, starting with himself, praying for the disciples, then praying for others.
And the key is what he, what he prays. Uh, Jesus seems to want to get them ready to face the toughest time in their life. If you remember, and I had Zach read it for you, the last verse of chapter 16. In this world, you'll have trials and tribulations. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. So this prayer is about Jesus praying for them to be able to overcome anything. And I believe in this prayer is what you need to grab a hold of and I need to grab a hold of to be able to face anything in our life. In fact, he even says it in that last verse, that you may have peace. That's what he's praying. So with those things in mind, look at the first point that I want to say to you. Uh, Jesus prays that we glorify God. In fact, before I say that, you know, I was thinking about this prayer when I was studying it this week, thinking, you know the phrase, more is caught than taught? Okay, we've just been reading in chapter 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, all these things, beautiful stuff that Jesus taught them. And they weren't quite getting it. And so he prays out loud. Did you think that? He had to pray out loud. Well, how would they have written it down? They prayed out loud that they would catch what they couldn't be taught. So would you, in the same kind of boat, in the same kind of place, or maybe you're a little confused, maybe you can catch if you just listen. Listen to what God's saying. Listen to what God's saying to God, what Jesus is praying to his heavenly Father. Maybe Jesus hoped they would be able to catch it, which is why he prayed out loud. So Jesus prays that we glorify God. Look at verse 1 with me. Ready? Chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. I don't know about you, but that would catch my attention right off. Do you remember chapter 2? What happened in, in, in John chapter 2? Jesus is at a wedding. His mom's there too. They run out of wine. She says, son, get, get some wine. Make some wine. Get some, dude, fix this. And what does he say to her? Mom, my time hasn't come. It's not my time. But here he's saying, it is my time. The time has come. It's right now. And look what he goes on to say. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So the whole point he's trying to say here is glorify the son so the son may glorify you. Then later on he talks about that even these who have received your glory, received my glory, that they may glorify you too. But the point he's trying to say is it's all about the glory of God. All about that. What does glory mean? Well, in this context, glory means to recognize. To give credit to. That's what it means to glorify somebody. To give honor to. Recognition, like I just said. It's to make, to make much of is what one author likes to call it. Uh, John Piper calls that. Glory means to make much of. He says, Lord, have them make much of me. May, may I be made much of so that I can make much of you. Give glory to you, credit, recognition, honor. Look at verses 4 and 5. We're going to skip 2 and 3. Kind of come back to that in point 2. But look at verses 4 and 5 because he says this. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. It's called the pre-existence of Christ. 
He actually existed with God in heaven before he came to earth. And notice something. At that last verse, in verse 5, he ends by saying, before the world existed. If you take that word world and circle it throughout the whole text, you, you will see the word world appears 18 times in this prayer. 18 times. World, 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 world. It keeps mentioning the world. And here he's saying, I existed before the whole world existed. What he's trying to point out is, listen to me closely, there are two worlds. If you're a Christian, you don't believe this is all there is, do you? You believe there's two worlds. There's two realities, as C.S. Lewis used to call it. There's not just this reality. That's what our world tries to sell us. This is all you got. This is your only life you're going to live. You better get all you can get while the getting's good kind of thing. This is it. That's what evolution teaches us. That's what the secular world teaches us. But it's not true. It's not what the scriptures teach. There's two worlds. There's two realities. And over and over again, Jesus is contrasting this world and that world, this reality, the earth reality, the worldly reality, and the godly, truthful, eternal reality. That's what's happening here. So he mentions this world over and over again. And that we should... We should be able to see that. Think about it. If you're going to face some of the toughest times in your life, one of the most important things to realize is this is not all there is. So this is why he's introducing it to these guys. We're talking about real, the glory. And Think about it. You're, you're going to glory in one world or the other. You're going to give credit, recognition, honor to one world or the other. Even this is why he criticizes accumulating things in this world, this earth, because there's more to life than this earth, this world. And he keeps contrasting and saying, God, help them glorify you. To realize the glory of God is more important than the glory of this earth. That's the very reason he keeps mentioning the word world over and over and over again. Look at verses 15 to 17. We'll just skip to that real quick, and I want to show you something else. In verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That they, that, uh, excuse me, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. If you ask the question, okay, I want to be able to give God glory. How do I do it? These verses answer that, especially that last verse, 17. He says, sanctify them in your word. Sanctify them. Your your word is the truth. The way you give God glory, recognition, credit, honor, make much of him is to make much of the truth, the word. You set apart, the word sanctify means set apart. You set apart yourself in the word, which is what you're doing right now. You're sitting here listening to a sermon on the word. When you read the word and you study the word, you're making much of the word. You're giving credit to the word. You're listening to it. You're applying it. When you ask the question, how do I glory in God? How do I give him recognition? Well, give recognition to the Bible. Give recognition and honor and credit to the scriptures. 
And this is what Jesus prays for some guys that are going to face the toughest time in their life. What about you facing the toughest time in your life? Whatever you do, don't forsake the word. Get in the word. Study the word. Hold on to the promises of the word. That's where we learn about the world to come. That's where we learn there's more reality than this just reality. And think about it. If you're going to face the toughest time in your life, what's more important than understanding? Well... There's more than what I'm just seeing, touching, and feeling right now. It's a whole nother reality. I've got to use the word to focus on that. Just the other night, we were Zoom calling with my brother-in-law, Joel, and um, his wife, Ellen. Maybe some of you remember them. They were here years ago. They've been around our church for years. <clears throat> but they've been missionaries mostly in, in Africa, in West Africa. And... Um, for 25 years, they served as missionaries over there, and uh, not knowing that they were going to about to face the toughest time in their life, uh, their son had come home. He graduated from college. He went to Wheaton, which is a great school in the Chicago area, and he, he, he was 21 years old, and he took off to go work in a mission, <clears throat> and in that mission, he fell madly in love with this other girl, this girl that was there. And uh, so much so that they were already engaged and going to get married within a couple of weeks. He's back in Illinois at his old campus where he used to play football on the team. And he's jogging around the track and he dropped dead. 21-year-old boy. Here's my brother-in-law, Joel, and his wife. Their 21-year-old boy dropped dead. The biopsy showed he had an abnormal malady in his heart no one ever knew about. The toughest time in their life. And watching Joel and Ellen go through that, I went up there to preach that sermon at that funeral. Watching them in the next few months, next few years, the key, listen to me, the key to getting through the toughest time in their life was what? The word. Sanctify them in the word. Your word is truth. That's the truth, folks. How much do you read your Bible? How much do you study your Bible? How much do you memorize Scripture? How much do you think about it? It's the key to you being able to make it through the toughest time of your life. Without it, I don't know if you're going to make it. And like the disciples, you probably don't even know what you're going to face. Just like Joel and Ellen, they had no clue. But I know you can if you hold on to the word. So, Jesus prays that we glorify God by glorifying the scriptures. Secondly, Jesus prays that we know God. Look at verses 2 and 3 now. Let's go back to that. Verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, talking about himself, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He says, well, I, I pray that you would give me glory, that I'd be able to, and thank you for calling me to what I'm supposed to do, give eternal life. And then he explains what eternal life is. Eternal life doesn't mean you just live on forever and ever and ever. Of course you do, if you have eternal life. But it's deeper than that. He says eternal life is knowing God. Do you remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus was um, 
teaching his disciples in that sermon is recorded in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in chapter 7, he says, well, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform miracles in your name and cast off demons in your name and do all these miracles? And he's going to say, depart from me. He says, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Key word, knew. I never knew you. You mean you could do lots of things? You could come to church? You could be a good person and never know God? Yeah. Very clearly, you could. It's not what you know. It's who you know. Do you know him? It's a relationship. In fact, the word there used is one of the first words you learn when you learn Greek, uh, biblical Greek. I spent many years studying biblical Greek in my life. Uh, and the, one of the first words you'll learn is the word gnosko. And the word for know here is from that word gnosko. Gnosko means to know intimately. And sometimes when the scriptures even talk about a man knowing a woman, it uses this word gnosko in Greek. But it's not here talking about anything, that kind of intimacy, but an intimacy of relationship. What Jesus prays for his disciples, that they would be able to have eternal life and pass on that eternal life, which is really knowing God. He's praying that they would know God in this eternal, intimate personal way. It's a, it's a connection. Uh, what did I call it here? A, a, a living connection. Not just an impartation of, of some kind of knowledge. And the result of knowing God is this. Look at verse 13. I'm skipping around here, but I want to get the full context. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Key word, speak. These things I speak. The speaking of these things will give them joy. The joy comes from the speaking of the word of God. The word, the word that Jesus spoke to us, holding on to these. He says, I spoke these things to them so that they may have my joy. Listen to me. He's talking about guys who are going to face the toughest time in their life and he prays that they would be able to have joy. He's saying that you could have joy when you face the toughest thing in your life, the most miserable thing, the thing you wouldn't wish on anybody else. He's praying, I'm praying you get to have joy and you go, joy, what, jo- what do you mean joy? How could I have joy? I remember talking this through with my brother-in-law, Joel, who I already told you about. And he goes, Marty, I've discovered you can have joy and grief at the same time. What? You can be grieving and hurting and feeling the loss and this ache in your heart and have joy? Yes. He says it's in the word. What's spoken to you by God. This is what Jesus prayed for you. He's, he's praying for his disciples and then later he says, and that includes us, all of us. Wow. Powerful words, right? And in verse 8, he puts it like this. Listen, this is how you become a Christian. For I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them. And they have come to know in the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you have sent me. Notice the words received, know, and believed. It's like the process. Receive the word. You know the word. And you believe the word. 
And from our perspective, he's describing, this is what happened to my disciples. Well, they received the word from me, and then they, they, they knew it, and then they believed it for themselves. He's like trying to, he's explaining to the Lord what's happened to these people. But in contrast to that, over and over again, he says these words, to whom you have given me. He, you know, he's, he's trying to explain to them how they were given. Let's put that on the screen. Um, there it is. To, to all whom you have given me. To all whom you have given me. That's repeated eight different times through this passage. Or is it six? I think it's six different times. Well, hold it. Did God give you these people? Did the Father give these to Jesus? Or were these um, guys that simply received it, knew it, and believed it? Do you see the contrast there? Well, did God give him? It's almost like the contrast we read about where it talks about election or foreknowledge or predestination. Well, when God, Jesus, is talking to God, the Father, he says, you gave him to me. But when he's talking about what happened to the disciples, he said, well, they received it. And then they knew it, and then they believed it. From the human point of view, it's all about us taking the word, receiving the word. But from God's point of view, God gave them. It was already predestined. It was, a, it was part of God's plan. Do you understand? That it's a matter of how you're looking at it from a human point of view or from a God point of view. Now, why would this be important for Jesus to mention to somebody who's going to face the toughest time in their life? Here's why. Because all of us need to know, no matter what we've received, what we've known, or what we've believed, that God has a lot better grip or hold on us than we have on him. Let's put that on the screen. I think I put that up there. God has a better... Jesus prays to us to be able to, to see God and know him. Yes. But he, he knows that God has a plan for our life and has a better grip or hold on us than we could ever have on him. <clears throat> I have a friend named Rob, and um, I was out west with him one time. I was with, in fact, my wife was with me in this time, but I got to spend a whole day with this guy named Rob in a pickup truck driving around in Wyoming. It was really fun. We're on this great adventure, and uh, I'm talking to Rob. He knows I'm a pastor, and I'm listening to him talk about his life. And it seems pretty clear after a little bit of talking, he's got trouble. He's in a lot of trouble. His marriage is in trouble. He's just a young guy. This happened maybe 25 years ago. And uh, Rob's having problems in his marriage. He's having problems in his business. Because he's in business with his brother and his dad. And there's lots of conflict. He's having trouble personally. Some things he never did tell me about then I found out later with some drug abuse. And he's having problems adjusting to being a father of a new little toddler. And so he's probing me and asking me a few questions and I'm probing him and asking him questions. I go, well, Rob, tell me about anything else been happening. Yeah, some strange things. I what do you mean? He says, my wife, all of a sudden she started going to church. 
She's going to this prayer meeting. Really? That's interesting. Yeah, and a couple weeks ago, this guy comes by, and I, I'm, I'm driving him around, and guess what? He starts talking to me about Jesus because he's in some band, and they travel around singing, and he says, he's telling me I need Jesus. I said, isn't that interesting? Your wife's going to a prayer meeting, and they, and they tell me they're praying for you, huh? Yeah. He says, and this guy comes, and he's talking to you about Jesus. Yeah. And I said, now you're riding around a pickup truck with a preacher all day long. Wow. I said, Rob. I think God's got your number. That's what I said to him. It just came out of my mouth. I think God's got your number. In other words, God's after you. Remember when Jesus said, no one just comes to me unless the Father draws him? See, that's a God perspective thing again, isn't it? Yeah. We think we're just coming to Jesus. He goes, ah. Do you know that's true of everyone in this room right now? You thought you'd get up this morning and just come to church. <laughs> you thought it was all about you, huh? <laughs> No, he drew you here. He planned it. Yeah, from a God-to-God perspective, that's exactly what happened. Oh, the Father gave them to me, Jesus said. God's got your number. Yeah, he does. I think that there's, it, it, after so many years of being a pastor and talking to so many people, it's like, God's doing it. I just happen to be the mouthpiece, but he's doing it. He draws people. He's drawing you. He wants you to know him. Well, that third thing now, let's get into it. I got to go quick on this one. I'm running out of time. Jesus prays that we join God. Look at how he he comes toward the ending of this. Uh, Look at chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's you and me, right? That they may all be one, just as you are, uh, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says, if we can be unified, if we can be together, the the world's going to be witnessing what God does. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is praying that we'd be unified, right? Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow. He seems to be clearly suggesting if you and I can get along with one another, if we can join up and be unified, if we can be together, it'll be such a powerful witness. In chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he says, love one another. Just as, and he says, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, that being unified is going to be the most powerful witness we had. We always look at the miracles of Jesus and think, boy, if we could just have someone blind be able to see, if we could just have somebody who's lame be able to walk, if we could visualize and see a miracle, people would believe. And he's saying, no, you don't need that. The miracle of you guys getting along and being together and working through things and loving one another, that miracle is going to be powerful in the world. So powerful, people will come to Christ. And that's what he's praying the disciples would do, praying that you and me would do. I put down here, Jesus didn't pray for institutional unity. He prayed for devotional unity, that we'd get past our different traditions, past our different educational things, past the times of we've been in this time, different generations, past ethnic problems, all kinds of different things. 
and that we would be one. Um, This is vital to know in hard times because one of the biggest problems I think I've seen over the years in some of you is you try and do it alone. And no Christian, no underlined, no Christian was ever supposed to be able to do it alone. One of the worst things about being American is our independence. (laughs) We think we can do it ourselves. You can't be a Christian solo. It won't work. Jesus is praying here that it won't work for you, that it would work when you would get together in a small group, in a big church, in a Bible study, in a fellowship group of men or women, in a mini church, whatever it be, but that you be one where you can literally bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, build up one another. These are all quotes from the New Testament. Help one another, love one another, teach one another, oh, one another, one another. It's all over the New Testament. You know what? I feel like sometimes I go, Lord, Lord, you just got to help me. You, you got to send me some help. And he goes, I sent you the whole church. I sent you every friend you got. I've sent them to you. You got it right there. Lord, please help me. Brother Ray, tell somebody. Walk with somebody. Have them help you. Admit you. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you be healed, it says in James. It's a one another thing. Jesus is praying it right here for the disciples. Look, look at how he ends the whole thing. Let's just finish up. Chapter 17, verses 25 and 26 read like this. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, And I will continue to make it known that the love which you have loved me, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus prays that we would have love, that this love would be in us. It's all about him. He's the one that's going to make you able to handle anything this world throws at you and to be able to overcome. Think about it. In a minute, you know, the team's going to come out. We're going we're gonna to sing praise to the Lord. Why do we do that? Does God need us to tell him how great he is? Seriously? Praise the Lord Jesus, raising our hands. I don't think so. I don't think God needs it at all. I think we need it. He knows this is good for us. You see, on our little life map of where we're going to go, of what we're going to do, of what we're going to become, our map of life, we need to be continually reminded God is our destination. He is it. 
I believe when we get to heaven and we, we, we hear the praises of the angels and we see choirs of angels singing praise to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It says it right in the book of Revelation. That's the picture of it, Revelation 4 and 5. That we're going to go there and we're going to, the words out of our mouth will be, it's him, it's him. He's right there. Look, it's him. He is the thing that makes heaven heavenly. God does. God makes heaven heavenly. He is our destination. So what that happens in this world is all leading to the world to come because it was all made for his glory. It's all about knowing him. The whole end of our life is to know him and be with him forever. He is our destination. All he asks us to do is join him in this. Well, let's end. I, I wrote down here in my outline, I just think it fits. Uh, the summary of this whole thing, it'd be like Jesus saying, okay, now I've got all of you and you've got all of me. Let's go. It's almost like I could hear a coach saying that to the team. Okay, you got what I'm doing. I got what you're doing. Let's go. Let's go win the game. Come on, let's hit. But this isn't a game. This is your life. This wasn't their game. This is their life. They're going to go see their, their hero, their coach, their Lord die on a cross. They're going to be so confused. Toughest time in their life. You may be going through the same thing right now. Let me ask one final question. Did it work? Did, did God answer this prayer of Jesus? Are you kidding me? Did he answer it? Here we are 2,000 plus years reading it. The, 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 the message of the gospel has reached every continent in the world. Millions upon millions of people are worshiping God just like you are right now. Did it work? Oh my gosh. Did you know in the southern hemisphere of the world, there's more gospel, more people becoming Christians now in the southern hemisphere of the world than ever before in human history? Africa, Asia, all these different places is just on fire. It's just gone crazy. I met with a guy who's a missionary uh, out in the Mediterranean right now. He goes, Marty, I'm getting people ready to go into the 1040 window. And he says, it's so exciting. He says, okay, maybe the church is declining in America or in Europe, but in the rest of the world, it's exploding. Do you think it worked? Did God answer the prayer? Yes. And what we need here is revival, turning back to the Lord, to realize our life is to give him glory. Our life is to know him. Our life is to join him because he is our destiny. So let's end. They're going to play. We're going to praise the Lord because we need it. We need to remember he's our destiny. He's your destiny. Well, are you facing the toughest time in your life? You might be tomorrow. You will be someday. Guaranteed. Well, what'd you learn? He needs all of you. He's got all of you. He says, just join me. Let's go. Let me pray for you like Jesus prayed. Lord, I don't know who might be here facing a tough time. 
but whoever they are, help them remember you have a hold of them far more than they have a hold of you. Help them remember your word, sanctifying themselves in your word. That's the truth that's going to get them through. Lord, I offer them up to you. May we remember and never, never forget we don't have some other earthly destiny. You are our destiny. So I pray for revival to happen in our hearts, for an awakening to take place where we get a grip on you, a hold on you, a hold on the truth of your word like we never did before. And from this day forward, that the group of people in this room right now would be able to say, yeah, but I see the Lord. Yeah, I'm going to give him glory. I'm not going to glory in this earth. I'm going to glory in the world to come, in the reality to come in Christ. And that you would give them victory just like you have for disciples for the last 2,000 years. And I want to give you thanks and praise right now for what you're going to do through this group of people. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.